Jeremiah chapter 8, and we'll begin reading in verse 4. This is God's word, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 4. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, When men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, What have I done? Everyone turns to his own course, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. How can you say, We are wise, and the law of the Lord is within us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Why do we sit still? Gather together. Let us go to the fortified cities and perish there. For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and has given us poison water to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came for a time of healing, but behold, terror. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. At the sound of the neighing of their stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men." They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor, and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. 
Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully with his mouth. Each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through and the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the air and the beasts have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you take a sobering passage and help us to see what it is for us that we need to see your grief over sin, the grief that we need to have over sin, but also the hope of the gospel, Lord, that our sins have been paid for. So give us great hope as we look at your word today. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your law, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you didn't know until now why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, This is why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. This and other passages, but this one in particular uh, has within it this section that describes uh, pretty vividly this deep, deep grief that Jeremiah has. And we get it. I mean, we understand. We're far enough in now to know why his grief was so deep that over this 40-year ministry that Jeremiah had, he saw incredible evils committed by the people of God. The very people he was sent to help. And you can imagine, put yourself in his shoes. You're sent to help a people and they don't listen. They keep doing the same silly stuff over and over again. Some of you have experienced this. You know how frustrating it is. You've tried to help a wayward child who won't listen, won't receive your help, won't take your advice, is resistant Maybe it's an aging parent who doesn't want change and they resist your help to their own detriment. It's frustrating. It's beyond frustrating. And so we can understand to some degree why Jeremiah was filled with such grief, not just overseeing the fact that the people wouldn't respond, but witnessing the perpetual sin against a holy God. But a question comes up in this section, and that is, who is weeping And crying. Is it just Jeremiah? As you notice, the voice changes throughout, just as we've seen throughout this entire section that we're in, the voice changes among three groups or three people. It's either Jeremiah's voice, the Lord's voice, or the voice of the people. And as you've noticed, even as we read this morning, I try and stop to give you a sense of the change of the voice, but it doesn't even work that way because I uh, don't have a narrator's voice. If I had different maybe tones or something, that would work better. But some of them we don't even know. We can't even be sure. 
And nearly every commentator I read this week wrestled with this very thing. Is this God's voice saying, I'm weeping and crying over my people? Or is this Jeremiah's? Particularly the section in verse 18 of chapter 8 to verse 3 of chapter 9, this lament. There isn't a voice that's identified until the very end. Verse 3 of chapter 9 says, declares the Lord, or states, declares the Lord. So we know at least that last statement was the Lord's, but does that mean all of it's his? Uh, Some of it clearly isn't. It's the voice of the people. And so we have to kind of work our way through this in determining who is speaking. Now, it was interesting that most of the older works, people that have been dead a while, uh, they attribute all of this to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He is the one who is lamenting. And it was only the newer works, some of which suggested that this is the voice of God, at least in parts, expressing this grief and this weeping. I don't know what the motives were of any of the writers. They don't necessarily share the motives, but you sense the hesitancy of not wanting to unfairly attribute to God something that doesn't belong to him. I find that in my own heart, a struggle to, I don't want to diminish the Almighty in any way. And when we talk about weeping or crying, uh, we, we kind of have a problem with that. So we have to consider our own cultural issues with crying. What is it about crying that makes us resistant to this? Well, crying, we see, is a sign of weakness. And yet, we see God grieve throughout Scripture, and we see the one who came to reveal the Father to us, Jesus, weep on a number of occasions. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Almost everybody knows that, right? This is the shortest verse. We memorize that because it's easy to memorize. No, Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Well, his friend Lazarus has died. And even though he knew he was coming to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still expressed that grief and he wept. Jesus has come to reveal the Father to us, John 14, 9 states. And Jesus wept in grief over the loss of Lazarus. He laments over the city of Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37. He weeps over the city in Luke 19.41. And Hebrews 5.8 tells us that he, with loud cries and tears, prayed before his death. If we know this about the one who has come to reveal the Father to us, then I think we can say with confidence that God has grief in his heart. Now, the problem comes when we talk about weeping. Because weeping for a God who has not a body like man is anthropomorphic language, right? It's attributing human descriptions to someone who doesn't, to God who doesn't have a body. And yet, I think the connection can be made. Now, again, we see weakness in crying, especially for men. We don't want to be known as criers. We don't want to be seen crying. We don't want to cry at all in many cases, And for most men, if you want to make them really uncomfortable, start crying around them. (laughs) We guys get really uncomfortable when someone else starts crying. But what is crying? Crying is simply a physical expression of an inward emotion. We have no problem laughing when we're happy. We have no problem expressing our anger. And I'll pick on the guys again here, right? (laughs) We have all kinds of physical expressions of anger that we're not in any way embarrassed by. 
And yet when it comes to crying, we act as if expressing that there is sadness and grief in this life is somehow a weakness. I think that's actually foolish. I think it's foolish to try and ignore the fact that there's grief in this life. There's incredible grief in this life. Incredible grief. Now, I can't answer the question about why our culture is the way that it is. I mean, we recognize it is what it is. But I will say that I do not think crying is a sign of weakness. Not if God Almighty grieves for us and with us. And we see this from the opening pages of Scripture. Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. We see it in the prophets. We'll see this in Jeremiah. We'll, won't jump there now, but Isaiah is another one. But they rebelled and grieved by his, they, and they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Isaiah sixty three ten. The psalmist captures the same thing. Psalm seventy eight forty. And in Romans twelve fifteen, what are we told to do? Rejoice with those who rejoice, and what? Weep with those who weep. So. Not only will I say that crying is not a sign of weakness, I can tell you that we are commanded to cry. It's right there, Romans 12, 15. Do with that what you will. So let's not avoid the notion that there is some tension in here with this in terms of how we understand it, but it is clear that what is being communicated is not simply limited to Jeremiah's heart. It is clearly the heart of God who is grieving. I believe God superintended the ambiguity that's here. The fact that not every voice is identified. You know, in our writing, we would, we would put he said, she said, they said after each statement to separate who said what. But God didn't do that. And so this ambiguity here is, is for us not to get wrapped up into who said what necessarily, although I think some of these are clear and are important to understand, but rather to understand whether it is Jeremiah speaking or God speaking, Jeremiah is his mouthpiece. Jeremiah is a prophet. He is God's messenger. So he has come to declare the message of God. So the sorrow and the torment that Jeremiah experiences physically and expresses for everyone to see, they're designed to communicate the heart of God to the people of Judah that they would repent and turn from their sin. Because he is our father and he loves us. And because he's our father, it breaks his heart when we willingly and repeatedly sin against him as the people of Judah have done. So this is important to understand as we're in this passage and we'll see in future passages. Let's begin looking now in verse 4. And here we see the Lord instruct the prophet to question Judah as to why she is living contrary to her creator. He points to the created order, the way things that we all recognize, the way things ought to be. They're to consider first their own inclination, that if you fall down, you do what? You may not be able to every time, but you sure want to, right? Um, You know, if you fall down, you try to at least get back back up again. I I remember I was cutting the grass once, and I, I was all alone. I don't, I, I, Micah was home, but he was in the house. I was in the backyard. Nobody could see me. But it was a wet, grassy hill. And I was you know, letting the mower go down in front of me as I was cutting up and down the hill. And my feet came out from under me and I landed. And my initial reaction, even though no one saw me, embarrassment's a great motivator, was to do what? Hop back up again, right? The pain of the injury didn't stop me from at least trying to get back up and return to my feet. If we fall down, we don't stay down. We at least 
try to get back up again, but Judah wasn't doing this. And in the same way, the people of Judah were turning in the wrong direction. Verse 5, perpetual backsliding. The word here for turn can be translated repent. And so it's as if the prophet is saying they are repenting in the wrong direction. They are unrepenting, if that were a word. They were doing the opposite of what they should be doing. They were going in the wrong way. They were on the wrong path. They knew it. They had been told, but they refused to turn. They were doing the opposite of what they should be doing. Instead of getting up when they fell, instead of turning away from sin, they were refusing. And there was no shame. Verse 6, they wouldn't even consider, what have I done? They weren't even bothered by it. And so they are told to look to nature. And we've seen this before. The Lord instructs His people to look around them, to look at the created order. Not just to themselves. If you fall, don't you get back up? Look at the birds. What do they do? We don't even notice it. Except when they show back up in the season or they leave in a season. But we don't even think about the fact they do this every year. And now that we have National Geographic documentaries, we find out that they fly to the exact same place and they come back to the exact same place and this is, you know, God's created GPS. I mean, they, there's no electronics involved, right? It's incredible to watch what creation does. He used the same illustration earlier in Jeremiah where he talked about the seashore. Doesn't the sea know where to stop? You know, it comes to the shore and it stops. And so anytime nature is out of order, we think something is wrong, right? If the sea crosses the shore, something is wrong. If the birds don't migrate, something is wrong. We notice that that's not the way it's supposed to be. Have you ever? We just had a marvelous storm yesterday. I love storms. Have you ever been outside, uh, especially in uh, tornado season? Uh, we don't have a lot of that here, but been somewhere where you have a, a particularly strong storm coming and the animals get quiet? It's one of the most eerie things. You don't even notice all the animal noise, the birds and, and so forth, the noises that they make until they get quiet. What does that tell us? Something's wrong. If the animals get quiet, you need to go inside in a shelter. That's, that's the, the message that nature's giving us. This, the storm that is coming is so serious that even the animals know it. And that is what the prophet is telling the people now. That you, you look, the natural world understands the divine plan, but you, the people of God, do not know the rules of the Lord, verse 7 states. They don't even know the rules of the Lord. They've been given the rules of the Lord, but they don't know them. Further proof is found among the leaders, the scribes. These were the ones who were to copy the law of God, but they were also given charge to explain it, what it meant. And they told the people, we are wise and the law of the Lord is within us. Yet Jeremiah says they were lying. They were twisting it. They were twisting scripture to accommodate their own agendas. And this is what allowed for the powerful to oppress the powerless. This is what we saw in chapter 7 where they were told, do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place. It was the twisting of Scripture that perpetuated this because the leaders were not only accommodating the sinful acts, they were participating in these very things as well. And we see this in our own day. So-called preachers tell their people to give money to their church so that they too can be rich. I've heard this message before. And, of course, the pastor has to set the great example to do what? Live the lush life, right, to show how faithful he is. And so these people are living in mansions, and they're driving, you know, multiple luxury cars. And although I keep dropping the hint about a private jet every time we have breakfast at C.J. Cannon's on Wednesday morning, 
No, these guys, I mean, seriously, there are these guys that are flying around in, in, in private jets. Why? Because they have twisted Scripture and, frankly, ignored a lot of Scripture to accommodate their own desires and wishes. Another example of those pastors who teach their people certain political allegiances. That politics are the answer to all of our woes. I'm not picking on any side because both sides have plenty of examples where they create this kind of messianic complex around, or or messianic favor rather, around their desired candidate. And they twist scripture to accommodate their stance, believing that political power is our hope. Another example are those pastors who teach against what scripture calls sin and instead suggest that love allows us to do anything we desire. They cherry-pick verses and texts that speak of God's love and mercy and fail to acknowledge the part of His Word that clearly teach against such sins. They twist Scripture to accommodate their own wishes and desires, in many cases believing this allows them to do whatever they want to do. This is how the scribes were functioning in Judah. There's nothing new under the sun. It's still going on today. And we are called to be discerning. These leaders are the ones who would say, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They lie and deceive. They feel no remorse. And again, we hear this phrase, Nor do they know how to blush. There's no shame, verse 12 says. They don't even know how to blush. In the end, failing to get back up from their fall or return to the Lord when they've gone the wrong direction, instead of helping the people resist sin, they begin to have this fatalistic mindset. They play the victim. Look in verse 14. The Lord our God has doomed us to perish and given us poison water to drink because we've sinned against the Lord. We read that and we think, oh, they've acknowledged their sin. (laughs) But they haven't because they never turned from it. They're saying this in almost kind of a, a cheeky kind of a way. And they're saying, oh, the Lord has doomed us. All these bad things are going to happen. And now they're playing the victim. This isn't a genuine acknowledgement of their sin. They try and console each other. For, but, but, but verse 10 tells us they're not victims. It makes it very clear. From the least to the greatest, it says, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. And so because of all of this, the heart of Jeremiah is grieved as we look in verse 18. Now again, whether it's the voice of Jeremiah or the voice of the Lord, we read, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. Why do the sins of his people grieve the heart of our God so greatly? Is it simply because he's offended? Is it simply because we haven't obeyed him? You know, we think in human terms. God is not a man, though, is he? It's not simply these things. Those are true. We have offended him. We have disobeyed him. But the people of God are here portrayed as a precious daughter. And all you have to do is watch a dad with his daughter to know what this language is trying to communicate. Four times the word daughter is used here. It's repeated. God's heart is grieved because his precious daughter enters into harm's way volitionally again and again and again. She chooses to abandon her father's protection, and he knows that she will suffer because of this. And it breaks his heart. It grieves him, and he's sorry. We hear the people's voice ask in verse 18, Has God left Zion 
Again, they're playing the victim. They're worried about food. Verse 20, uh, the harvests have passed. This implies that there was some kind of famine. We see this with the fig trees, with the withering leaves and so forth, that there's been some, ju- some judgment for famine. They're worried about this. Verse 22, they ask, is there no healing balm or a physician to restore health? They're concerned about their immediate needs. They're not concerned at all about their hearts. Already suffering under judgment. She knows where her help comes from, but she refuses to acknowledge, and she walks in the opposite direction. In the opening words of chapter 9, we see even more words of sorrow here. Whether, again, is it Jeremiah, is it the Lord, it still expresses the Father's heart over our sin and the sins of his people. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. And then he wishes for a place to get away. I just want to get away from all of this. Oh, that there was a place to lodge out in the desert. But notice what he says of his people here. They are still called my people. There's not indifference toward these rebellious ones, but deep love is expressed for them as he calls them my people. The reasons are again specified. They have lied. They are deceptive. Falsehood has grown in the land from evil to evil. And they do not know me, declares the Lord, verse 3. Then they, give, they receive a warning that they shouldn't even trust each other. That brother is set against brother, neighbor against neighbor to deceive and take advantage. For every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue, tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. They have literally exhausted themselves doing evil. Heaping oppression upon oppression, verse 6 says, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. And because of how they have rebelled against his law, how they have harmed one another, the Lord then asks the rhetorical question we read in verse 7, behold, I will refine them and test them for what else can I do because of my people? In other words, they deserve this. They have earned this. His daughter has been warned. He has protected her. She is precious to him. But they refuse to receive the words of correction. And then we see these laments expressed for creation. The mountains and the pasture lands because even the animals have gone away because of the ensuing army. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant, verse 11 says. This echoes the picture that we saw in chapter 4 where we called it uncreation, the undoing of creation, right? Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Things are going in reverse order. This is what would happen, <clears throat> excuse me, to Judah because of the judgment of God that was coming. So once again, we have this heavy, sad passage because we see the sorrowful choices that Judah has made. We get it, but it's, it's hard. It's solemn. And yet, I wonder, do we grieve our own sins in the same way as God grieves the sins of his people? Are we sorrowful for the many ways we transgress the law, for the many ways that we fail to measure up to God's holy standard? Christopher Wright writes this, Israel would admit to no wrongdoing. Indeed, they lack any faculty of self-criticism or self-questioning. It is a very advanced state of hardness when people are so convinced in their own integrity while they cling to deceit that, no, that they ask no questions and want no questions to be asked. There's no alternative, they cry. 
It's frightening to wonder at what point any society has become so committed to its own immoral paths that it has passed the point of no return. Western culture may have already done so. Sobering words for our own day. Yet there is a physician. There is someone who has a balm that can bring healing. And he stands ready to save. Jeremiah would get to this, and we keep peeking ahead because we need words of hope, don't we? Jeremiah 31, the message is clear. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. The God who wept over the sins of his people and grieved the sins of his people, now pronounces words of hope, words of love, and words of mercy. And you get it when you hear the statement again, repeated over and over, that there's something coming and it's going to be so abundant, it's going to right all the wrongs. It's going to make up for all the losses. It's going to redeem all of the sorrows. He would send one who would overcome their sins and sorrows and make everything bountiful and full of joy again. And that Redeemer did come in the person of Jesus to conquer sin and death and to bring ultimate defeat to all evil and to all that opposes our holy God. In His death and resurrection, we have been made alive unto Him by faith. His death satisfied the just wrath of God against our sins, overcoming the griefs of our loving Heavenly Father and healing our wounds healing our sorrows. His bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. The people uh, had heard this message before from the prophet Isaiah who foretold this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The one who was grieved over our sins, over our waywardness, and over our folly, has solved the problem of his own grief himself by sending the Redeemer. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. We have only to put our trust in Christ alone to be made whole again. Not only has he removed this stain of guilt, but he intercedes now on our behalf. He ever lives above for me to intercede, His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Hebrews 10, 19 states, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, 
for he who promised is faithful. With confidence and full assurance of faith. With confidence and full assurance of faith. The griefs of our sins have been satisfied. We can now sing, my God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Let's pray. Lord, our sins grieve you and our sins grieve us. Thank you for the balm of Gilead. The great physician who has come to heal all of our diseases and all of our sorrows. May we not be so tried as to think that our greatest needs are these physical things that we face in this life, but may we see that our greatest need is to be saved from the wages of sin, our sin, my sin. And may we see in Christ that deliverance so that we are now called children, your children, and can by the work of Christ now call you Father, Abba, Father. Would you help us to see with great confidence the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ? And would you give us gladness that even in the midst of the sorrows that we walk through in this life, and even in the midst of the griefs and the anxieties that we face, that there is a hope. There is a hope beyond this world and this life. That there is a hope that everything will be made right. That we will be brought safely home. Would you strengthen our hearts in this truth today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.